I want to draw your attention to Acts chapter 4, verses 36 and 37. Acts 4, 36 and 37. It, it wouldn't surprise me if, if you don't care at all about what Abraham Lincoln had on his person when he was assassinated. Probably don't care at all, do you? But I'm going to tell you anyway, uh, just in case one or two might have a mild interest. He had on his person uh, a pocket knife. He had two pair of glasses, one of which was broken, and the presumption is that he was going to use the pocket knife to, to help fix uh, that pair of glasses that wasn't working quite right. He had a crisp new $5 Confederate bill and um, some string. He also had uh, eight newspaper clippings. And these newspaper clippings were from newspapers within the previous year uh, leading up to his re-election. And we're told that those newspaper clippings were largely positive portrayals of his speeches. So he had on his person six articles that said, Mr. Lincoln did well in his speech. Uh, he needed encouragement. Why would one keep those? Well, sometimes praise uh, doesn't actually go to your head and make you proud. Sometimes praise just lifts your spirits and encourages you to keep you going. That's what was going on with Mr. Lincoln. And everybody needs encouragement. Everybody needs a, a Barnabas in their life. Acts chapter 4, verses 36 and 37 says this. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought this money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So this, of course, is in the context of uh, the, the loving fellowship that characterized the early church, the church in Jerusalem, the church just saved, and in the glow of that remarkable work of God. And in that context of loving fellowship, Luke highlights for us the life of one particular man, the impact of one particular man in that wonderful context. And he sets Barnabas before us, and I want to set him before you tonight as an example uh, for us to follow. If I'm honest with you, I think that you people, uh, you are of the tribe of Barnabas. You're encouragers. I've found that to be true personally in my experience and my fellowship with you. You're, you are, I'm not sure what the plural of Barnabas is. Maybe it's Barnabai. I don't know. You are Barnabases. You're of that tribe. 
There's an interesting line in uh, Harper Lee's book, Go Set a Watchman. That's the, the long-awaited follow-up to, um, uh, to Kill a Mockingbird. And in, in that book, Scout, who now has grown up, describes her aunt in this way, the brother of Atticus. Uh, she describes her aunt, and she says, she was a disapprover. I don't know if you've ever been on the receiving end of that look. You know, the look of disapproval. I'm not going to try to show you, just in case you think I'm a connoisseur of it, but you know the look, the look of disapproval. And how horrible to be aptly described in that way, for someone to rightly say about you, you are a disapprover. You're very good at wagging that finger. How much better for us to to heed the counsel of the Apostle Paul when he says in 1 Thessalonians 5.11, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. So, as you are doing, let's keep building one another up. Let's continue to be a Barnabas to one another, to the saints of God. This word encouragement means means encouragement. Nothing mysterious about this. It means encouragement. It means consolation. It means comfort. It means... um, to entreat someone. You want to entreat and exhort them in the way of righteousness and away from the the way of wickedness. You encourage them and urge them along and and, uh, exhort them in the way that they ought to go. So when Barnabas is around you, you find that he helps you. He doesn't tear you down. No, he lifts you up. That's why he's called Barnabas. He is the son of encouragement. He gets you back on your feet. Perhaps you've wobbled a bit. Perhaps you've stumbled. He gets you back on your feet. Uh, You've been discouraged, but he makes you think that you can keep going. You can put one foot in front of another. He makes you think that it's going to be okay. He's a Barnabas. Well, he was a Levite, this Barnabas. He was from Cyprus, and he was a landowner, so he was a man of substance, and he could put some money on the plate and um, his real name was Joseph, but, or Joseph, but he had earned uh, the name Barnabas. He had earned this, uh, this title, Son of Encouragement. Interestingly enough, Barnabas doesn't mean Son of Encouragement. It means Son of Nabus. You know, Simon Bar-Jonah is the Son of Jonah. And so Barnabas means Son of Nabus. But uh, the idea is something like this. When people thought of Barnabas, they thought, oh, he's an encourager. So that title is given to him. His given name was Barnabas, son of Nabus. His earned name, really, was Barnabas, son of encouragement. I want to be a, a Barnabas to people. I want to earn that that title, I, th- I think you would want to as well. In Acts chapter 9, when everybody was afraid of Saul, well, Barnabas stood by him. And Barnabas reached out to him. And Barnabas tried to integrate him into the church. 
In Acts 15, when John Mark had been marginalized because of his failure, well, Barnabas stood by him, and Barnabas labored alongside of him. And here in our passage, where there are people in need, Barnabas steps up to the plate, and Barnabas wants to help them. And so he sells and he gives. He's a son of encouragement, is this Barnabas. So I want to tell you about encouragers so that you and I can plant our feet right in their footsteps and be like them. And the first thing I want to tell you about an encourager is that an encourager points people to God. We saw that in the passage that we read. So Barnabas is sent up to Antioch, and he sees the work of God there, not jealous because it's a different work than he's involved in, but sees the grace of God, and so he's happy about that and rejoices in that, and then he encourages them, same word, he exhorts them, he entreats them uh, to continue with the Lord, uh, to be steadfast in their following of the Lord. So he's pointing them to God. He's pushing them in the direction of God. He's urging them and encouraging them and and moving them along towards God and the following of the Lord. And he's doing what Jonathan did for David. You remember Jonathan helping David, days of trouble that David is in the midst of, and, and Jonathan comes along and Jonathan does what? Well, he strengthens his hand in God. And that's what Barnabas does, and that's what an encourager does, and and that's what uh, we want to do. An encourager comes along and he points people to God. He reminds people about God. He whispers in their ears something about God that he thinks might be, well, something that might lift them up, something that might steady them, because they've been shaken. So he wants to remind them about God so that they might be steadied in their course and on their pilgrimage. We want to spend most of our time on this because really, even the other points I have are just subsets of this, of pointing people to God. And when you point people to God, what are you doing? Well, you're telling them, first of all, about Jesus. You're telling them about Jesus. No wisdom like the wisdom of the the Puritans and Thomas Watson says, One smile from Jesus sustains my soul amid all the storms and frowns of this passing world. Pray to know Jesus better. Well, that's what an encourager is going to do. He's going to help you to know Jesus better. He's going to remind you about how important it is to know Jesus better. He's going to inform you about how you'll be uh, strengthened and encouraged and lifted up when you know Jesus better. Jesus, you see, is the source of all our consolation, all our comfort, all our encouragement. Those are all translations of the same word. Jesus is the source of all that. 2 Corinthians 1.5 says, For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. All our encouragements ultimately find their source and origin in Jesus. So you want to know Jesus better. 2 Thessalonians 2, 16 and 17. Now may our Lord Jesus himself and our God and Father, who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation or everlasting encouragement 
and good hope by grace. May God comfort your hearts. Same word, encourage, and establish you in every good work. The Lord Jesus is the source of all our encouragements. We come to him and know we receive from him eternal encouragement, and he's the one we ask to encourage us. And no wonder, because listen to what the Heidelberg Catechism says here about where our only comfort is. The first question in the Heidelberg Catechism, what is your only comfort in life and death? Here's the answer. That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. It's all from him. And everything's in Him. And all our comforts and blessings are in Him. You'll find no comfort in the world. You'll find no lasting consolation and encouragement in this world. Nothing but darkness and death and destruction outside of Jesus Christ. The lights may be on for a little while, but eventually it goes out. Nothing else outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no peace and no joy and no encouragement outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. McShane said, you will never find Jesus so precious as when the world is one vast howling wilderness. And then he is like a rose blooming in the midst of desolation, a rock rising above the storm. And when the Christian is at his most perceptive, He realizes and she understands that the world is indeed just that, a vast and howling wilderness. And then, at that moment, the Lord Christ is most precious. And you begin to understand with profundity that all encouragement and consolation is to be found in him. Your greatest joy and your deepest delight is in him. Jesus is everything to us. He rescues us. He forgives us. He saves us. He gives us access to God. He's with us in life. And he brings us to glory. He is everything. And so we've looked to him for salvation. And we're looking to him through life. And so... An encourager, then, if he's worth his salt, he's pointing you to Jesus. He's telling you about Jesus. What's more, he also helps us to focus on God and not our conditions. He helps us to focus our attention, not on life and its circumstances, but on God and his glory. You know, Psalm 42, verse 11 says, Why are you downcast, O my soul? This is, this is the psalmist doing what Lloyd-Jones says we ought to do. Lloyd-Jones says you ought to, when you're down and when you're discouraged, you need to 
He says, take yourself by the scruff of the neck and give yourself a talking to. And say, why are you downcast and discouraged, O my soul? And then offer the answer. And then give counsel. It's not enough to say, well, this is wrong. No, no, he says that. Why are you discouraged? This is how you should deal with this. Hope in God, he says. Well, that's what we're talking That's what a Barnabas does. He helps you to turn your attention from the circumstances that would weigh you down and fix your attention on the God who lifts you up. Hope in God, he says. Isaiah 26, verse 4 says, Trust in the Lord. Psalm 73 It says that even when circumstances are difficult, though circumstances are such that flesh and heart may fail, God is the strength of your heart. So yes, look to him. William Bridge writes that that God is more than a match for all of our troubles. He says that scripture sets Christ before us in ways that make him amiable to sinners. He says, when we are accused by Satan, Christ is our advocate. When we're ignorant, Christ is our prophet. When we're guilty, Christ is our priest. When we have enemies, he's our king and will protect us. When we're hungry and thirsty, he is bread and water. And so, the encourager comes along, the Barnabas, and he says to us now, don't look at the ways, look at the Lord. Focus your attention on your God and not upon your circumstances. And when you do so, you'll realize that there's some attribute, there's some virtue, there's some aspect of God that is more than a match for any trouble that you can locate and identify in your life and circumstances. Link everything to him. Take this situation that weighs you down and the circumstances the circumstance that crushes your soul, and and you link it to some aspect of God that just stirs you not only to hope, uh, but to praise. Link these things to God. Don't fix your attention on the circumstances. Don't have blinders like the horse and, and just see what's immediately ahead. Tear those off and look to God and see the splendor and the majesty of God, and then your little problem in that context. Well, the difficulty is that when we're in trouble, those blinders, they slap on almost immediately. And uh, Barnabas comes, and he helps us to take those off. and helps us to look up. helps us to see things in context and see things in perspective. That's the kind of thing that an encourager does. That's part of his pointing us to God. He reminds us to look not here, but there. And then the other thing he does, as part of his pointing us to God, is to remind us about God's providence. He reminds us about God's providence. Let me quote Thomas Watson again. Watson says, Whoever brings affliction... It is God who sends it. Whoever brings affliction, it's God who sends it. So Shimei comes, 
And Shimei says something horrible. And David says, well, the Lord sent him. And so situations and statements ultimately come from God. No matter what they are and no matter what they said, it comes from God. And uh, a, uh, a Barnabas reminds us about that because we forget. And sometimes the, the situation and the statement is so grievous that uh, it makes us forget things and our theology just runs out the door and flies out the window. But Barnabas comes along and he says, no, no, remember this. Remember, remember the John Flavel providence of God. Remember that book you read? Oh, yeah. And then he comes along and he reminds us, perhaps he speaks to a, a grieving parent, you know, a grieving parent who grieves over the fact that uh, they, oh, they have a child in the far country. They have a child who's, well, been raised and been taught and knows the gospel, defended it at times, but they've never turned. And now they're intransigent and troubled. And then this Barnabas comes and he reminds us about William Grimshaw and he reminds us about Andrew Fuller, both of whom died before their prodigal sons were actually saved. And it was in glory that they found out that God had done a work and God had caused the seed to germinate. And then in God's time, these boys were saved. And one of them at least said, oh, what will my father say when he meets me in glory? And Barnabas comes and reminds us about the providence of God like that. He says, well, you know, the story's not over. Don't give up hope. Don't despair. And, you know, don't whine. (laughs) And don't feel sorry for yourself. And keep going. And then the other thing he will do, this Barnabas, is he will remind us about the works of the Lord. He'll remind us about what God has done, and maybe what God is presently doing. He'll remind us about these things. Think of these these verses in the Psalms, because very often that's what the psalmist is doing. Sometimes they do it themselves. Sometimes you have to be your own encourager. Sometimes you have to be your own Barnabas. And you see the psalmist doing this again and again. And he, he, he starts out a psalm, and he's in despair. He's in the depths, and he's in the pit. And then he reminds himself about the works of God and the things that God has done, the deliverances that God has wrought. And then by the end of the psalm, he's back on his feet. He's out of the pit. He's on solid ground again. The waves are not bashing him anymore. He's steady and he's steadfast. And he's reminded himself about the works of God. Psalm 92. Oh, Lord, how great are thy works and thy thoughts are very deep. Psalm 104, O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your riches. Psalm 139, I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works. Psalm 77, I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. Psalm 104 again, O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you made them all. Psalm 92, For you, O Lord, have made me glad through your work. I will triumph in the works of your hands. 
R.C. Sproul writes that meditating on the works of the Lord reminds us of His greatness and that wise men and women fear Him, showing Him honor and love. And if we forget His mighty works in history, we may well be tempted not to fear Him in the manner He is due. Let us take time daily to think about the greatness of God's works. And if you don't want to be in the pit of discouragement, think about the works of God. Meditate on the works of God. And if you want to be an encourager, remind that discouraged brother or sister about about the works of God. Remember, Bill Payne did this for me years ago. I I was um, attending a, a church that had little interest in and much opposition to, in fact, the doctrines of grace. And I went to visit Pastor Payne and, and uh, poured out my tale of woe to him, which he interrupted because that was not really doing any good. And he began to tell me about, um, about what was going on. I thought I was the only Reformed guy in the world. And he began to explain to me something about the works of the Lord, something about what God was doing in our day at that time. And he began to tell me about conferences and about uh, people like Roger Fellows and, and uh, the, the books that were being published and so on and so forth. And I began to realize, it's not just me. And um, I was being pointed to what God was doing, you see. And that lifts your spirits. It makes you realize that God is at work here and that God can... The God who can do all of those things is the God who can carry you through your day and enable you to face your challenges. And that's what John Wesley did for for William Wilberforce. You may may know about Wilberforce's struggles at the beginning of his, his career and how he at first thought, now that I'm saved, I should get out of politics and should get out of the political realm and And John Newton encouraged him to go and to realize that, you know, maybe God has raised you up for just this moment and this time and this work. And so he did. But he had a monumental task. And so John Wesley encourages him. Interestingly enough, a man as solidly theologically, as solid theologically as John Newton, and as someone as a, well, a little dodgy, as John Wesley, they both encouraged Wilberforce. And Wesley wrote to him and said, Unless the divine power has raised you up, I see not how you can go through your glorious enterprise in opposing slavery, which is the scandal of religion, of England, and of human nature. Unless God has raised you up for this very thing, you will be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. So let's be realistic, he says. But if God be for you, who can be against you? Are all of them together stronger than God? Go in the name of God and in the power of his might. You see, he's pointing into the works of God and the power of God and the things that God can do. And he says, well, now you go. He says, your opposition is overwhelming, but with God, you'll be fine. That's the same with us. We need to think about the works of God. Of course, the greatest encourager of all is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ says something wonderful in Matthew 10. He says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? 
but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you're of more value than many sparrows. There was a study done within the last few years about how many birds there are. Like, I don't know how you get to the point where you say, I'm going to count the birds. Like, okay, well, they did. And, of course, university people, and they've got time, I guess. So they studied birds, and they've come up with this. So how many birds are there? Well, it's between 40 and 450 billion. So, (laughs) just Okay, so I don't know. Let's say, let's say 167 billion. Okay? It's within the range. So, most of them, we don't care one whit about. Don't track them, don't name them, and personally, don't care. Don't watch them either. Some of you have the wisdom to watch them. Don't watch them at all. My wife's got a wonderful couple of bird feeders. I'm reading, and shame on me. But there it is. So let's say, what do we say? 167 billion in the world, and not one falls to the ground, but God knows. That's astounding. And that God says, you're more important than any single bird and more important than all of them put together. So you'll be fine. And Barnabas comes to remind you about that. So that's the first thing he does, is he points you to God and you're thinking to yourself, my goodness, is that your first point? Uh, We're going to move more quickly after this. The second thing about Barnabas is that he's an encourager, that this encourager is a lover of people. He's a lover of people. Uh, He loves people more than money because, well, we can see that from verses 36 and 37. He goes and he, he sells a field and he brings the money and he puts it at the feet of the apostles to be used for the benefit of the church and for the blessing of the saints. And so he's a lover of people. He loved Saul of Tarsus. He showed very practically that he loved and cared for Saul of Tarsus. We read in Acts 9, 26 and 27, when Saul came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, understandably, and did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. Was Barnabas afraid? Wouldn't be surprised if there was a measure of fear that he had, but he stepped up. And he understood that something needed to be done for, for Saul's good. And, of course, ultimately, knowing Saul of Tarsus' history, we know that uh, it was ultimately for the good of the church. And so the encourager, he steps out of his comfort zone, doesn't he? He does things that other people are too uncomfortable to do. And he goes and he steps up and he seeks to be a blessing uh, to the people of God. The encourager... Well, he loves people. But to love people isn't easy. You read 1 Corinthians 13. It's not easy. These encouragers, 
uh, they also set an example to the rest of us. Uh, We watch them. You know, we're in our comfort zone and we're in our little cocoon and we don't want to step out. It's, It's inconvenient and it's uncomfortable, but we watch them and we see them and we're inspired by them and they stir us to mortify Self-love, because you should know that self-love and self-obsession is really at the root of so much of our troubles. Let me quote William Bridge to you again. I've quoted him to you a couple of times. This is, this is really a sharp, piercing arrow from Bridge. He says this. He says, if you would, if you would not be discouraged, whatever your condition may be, labor more and more to get your self-love mortified. If you don't want to be discouraged, stop being a lover of yourself. All your discouragements come from self-love, not from the venom of your condition, but from the poison of self-love. Well, that's medicine that would be thrown in the garbage today by most secular counselors and by a large majority of Christian ones. He says this, I dare boldly say there is no turmoil or immoderate discouragement in the soul which does not have self at the bottom. If I could leave myself and my condition with God in Christ, instead give my attention to his service, glory, and honor more, then God would take care of my comfort. But when I give much of my attention to myself and my condition so much, and little of my attention to his service, glory, and honor, then no wonder I am so much discouraged. Therefore, labor more and more to mortify self-love. In this way, you shall never be discouraged, whatever your condition be. And I'm saying to you that when we meet a Barnabas, that's the thing that strikes us, is this absence of self-love, this concern, this being taken up with others. And it's It's convicting, and it's stirring. And it moves us to want to be like them and to want to follow their example. We watch them, and they sell their property, and they give it all. They don't keep some back like Ananias and Sapphira, but they give it all. And they try, and they strive to be a blessing, and it stirs me to put to death my self-love and it stirs me to, to try and love others, and it stirs me to, to live for Christ. That's the second thing. Thirdly, the encourager uses the word. The encourager uses the word. You want to know your Bible very, very well. And you want to know your Bible very, very well so that you will have a storehouse of words of encouragement that you can share with struggling saints. Don't rely on, you know, the things that come to mind as you speak to someone who's struggling. Don't rely on your perceptions and your thoughts. Romans 15.4 says, Well, whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that through the patience and comfort of the scriptures, we might have hope. If you really want to encourage people, you need 
You need to give them biblical truth. You need to give them texts. You need to give them these, these pearls of wisdom drawn from the Holy Scriptures. These thoughts culled from the, the Bible. You pass these on to them. That's why we love good hymns. Because they're so full of scriptures. Maybe you find Fanny Crosby's hymns encouraging. I do. I'm sure you do. Well, why are they encouraging? Because she was a genius? Because she was this or that or the other? No, it's because they're, oh, they're biblical. And they're biblical because she was. Did you know that um, Fanny Crosby could, uh, even though she was blind, she could recite most of the New Testament? <laughs> I don't know how many verses. I'm, I, I struggle to memorize verses. And then once I've got them memorized, I come back and I think, what was that verse again? So, you, so that's a, I understand the struggle. But she could recite most of the New Testament. She could recite the Psalms. She could recite large portion, portions from the Pentateuch. So, that's why her hymns are encouraging. Because they're biblical. In Luke 4, Jesus rejects uh, the temptations of the devil using the scriptures. And if you want to help people, if you want to help them resist temptation, if you want to encourage them in their walk, you need to be rooted and grounded in the scriptures. You need to have the scriptures at your fingertips and on the tips of your, tip of your tongue so that you can, you can tell them, you can remind them, you can jog their memories because they probably know the same text. And as I said, when you come to help a struggling brother or sister, so often you're going to find yourself tongue-tied. You're going to find yourself just at a loss for words. They tell you their story. They explain to you their circumstances. And you don't know what to say. You have no words. But then, you see, you've been studying. You've been memorizing. You've been preparing for the last 13 years for that moment. And so you've been storing up. And all of a sudden, this verse comes to your mind. And you're able to realize that it's apropos. And then you begin to recite it to them. I ran across this verse this week. I was reading John Flavel. Um, Keep your heart. And uh, he mentioned this verse. And I thought to myself, that wasn't in my Bible before. But there it is. It says this. This is Isaiah 50, verse 10. Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. There's a verse you can give to somebody. There's a verse somebody, oh, their arms are hanging down and their knees are weak. And they're just shuffling along in the Christian life because they've been beaten down. And you can say to them, oh, listen to this. Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. And you'll do it tactfully. You won't do it self-righteously. Some medicine, you have to be very careful how you administer it. But you'll do it graciously. But you'll remind him about these texts. 
and he'll be lifted up. He'll be encouraged. Uh, but you see, you need, to have, you need to have the medicine handy. Uh, the encourager uses the word. Fourthly, the encourager stirs faith. He stirs faith, tries to stir faith in the people he's trying to encourage. Isaiah 26, 4, you know this verse. Trust in the Lord forever, for in Yah the Lord is everlasting strength. John 14, 1. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. And so that's what Barnabas does. He comes along and he says, now, come on now, trust the Lord. I understand. I mean, you do it sympathetically. I understand it's hard. But look, trust the Lord. Just trust him. Trust his wisdom. He knows what is best. Trust his goodness. He wants what is best. And trust his power. Because he can do what's best. And trust his purpose. He's planned what's best. Trust the Lord. I know things are going haywire, but trust the Lord. And when you trust the Lord, you can sleep at night. And you can leave tomorrow with him. And when you trust the Lord, you can do your work and leave the consequences with him. That's what the encourager does. He he stirs us up uh, to trust the Lord, to entrust ourselves to him, to trust his goodness and his grace and his wisdom and his power. Brooks, Thomas Brooks says, An eye fixed upon encouragements makes Heavy afflictions light, long afflictions short, and bitter afflictions sweet. That's good. So when you, oh, you trust God, trust his wisdom and his goodness and his power and his purpose. And I fixed on those encouragements makes heavy afflictions light, long afflictions short, and bitter afflictions sweet. Barnabas encourages us to trust the Lord, stirs faith within us. We want to be people like that, who have that kind of ministry for others. Number five, only six. Um, Not six left. (laughs) I only have six. Um, We're at number five now. The encourager directs attention to glory. The encourager directs attention to glory. Because frankly, you need that. Because this life... It's bitter. And if this is all there is, but it's not. And the encourager reminds us about that. The Lord Jesus is our great encourager, and he said, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice in this, that your names are written in heaven. That is where your citizenship is. That's where you belong. You're headed to the celestial city. You're a citizen of that place. That's where your names are written down. You don't belong here. You're passing through. You're a pilgrim. You're going home. I'll take you home to be with me where I am. The Lord Jesus is always fixing our attention on that which is above. How does Paul encourage us? encourages us in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18 by reminding us that 
There's a glory that awaits. This affliction, oh, it's light. It's momentary. In comparison with the glory that awaits. And right now, it doesn't seem light. It seems heavy. And it doesn't seem momentary. It seems endless. But now, compare it with the glory. And realize that compared to the weightiness of glory, this is light. And compared to the endlessness of glory, this is temporary. So he's saying, now weigh these things up, you know. Don't look at this in isolation. Look at the glory and, and weigh them up. He's pointing us to glory, pointing us to heaven, reminding us of that which is to come and telling us to see this in light of that. That's encouraging. And you and I want to do that. We want to come alongside of people. Maybe they're in the midst of horrendous affliction. Maybe they're coming to the end of their lives. We want to remind them about Emmanuel's land. But you can't remind them about Emmanuel's land unless you know the contours of that land. So you must have spent time thinking about Emmanuel's land. You must have spent a little bit of time in the Word of God considering what God says about that which is to come. Is that what you've done? I mean, have you spent time thinking about heaven? Have you heeded Baxter's counsel? Take a little time each day and think about heaven. Have you thought about that which is to come, about the promises of glory that God has set down in his word to help us through life? And so we want to be those who, well, we know about the hope. We know about the glory. We've thought about these things. We've examined the promises and we've familiarized ourselves with what lies ahead so that we can say things like, well, like Thomas Brooks said. He said, your life is short. Your duties many. Your assistance great. Your reward sure. Therefore, faint not. Hold on and hold up in ways of well-doing. And heaven shall make amends for all. When you get there, it'll be worth it. And we remind people about that. Lastly, the encourager, well, he spots the needy. He sees the needy. Barnabas saw that Saul needed help. And he helped him. And then Barnabas saw that Mark, John Mark, needed help. And so he stepped up. And then Barnabas saw that these people here, the poor, well, they needed some money. So he, he stepped up. And shame on people who do nothing. Shame on those who, who sympathize, but they're not willing to sacrifice, uh, to help. No, we don't want to be like that. No, we want to, uh, we want to see those in need. And then we want to do something. And there are all kinds of seasons in people's lives when they need help. When they need a, a Barnabas to come along and be an encouragement to them. All kinds of seasons. In John Flavel's book, Keep Your Heart, he talks about seasons of life when you particularly need to be careful to keep your heart, guard your heart. It struck me that those are the same seasons where we need to come along as a Barnabas and, and try and help and, and try and be an encouragement. For instance, he says, there are times of prosperity. 
times of prosperity, you need to encourage people. Why would they need encouragement? Well, because it goes to their head, you know. You need to help them to keep their feet on the ground. You need to help them to remember the Lord, acknowledge God, even in, and especially in times of prosperity. And in times of adversity, well, that's a no-brainer. We need to remind them about the things we've been talking about. And then there are times of, of fear. Do Christians get afraid? Absolutely they do. Sometimes we're afraid of our shadow. Sometimes, well, very often we're afraid of the future. And so Christians need to, we need to come alongside of Christians and, and remind them that when you have a father, you have no need of fear. Times of need, well, they might have times of physical need and financial need and material need, and we want to come alongside of them and encourage them and tell them that, it, you know, It'll all be, you have a Father who will give you daily bread. And then there are times of duty when Christians need to be encouraged. Maybe Christians are taking up a duty. Maybe they're being weighed down by a duty. And your job is to come along and help to lift them up, help them to keep going, and help them to place one foot in front of another. That's your job. There are different seasons then. And we need to recognize that. And we need to look for them. And when we come to church, we don't come and we stand and we say, well, now, okay, now, who, I'm ready here. Who's going to be a Barnabas to me? Here I am. I'm going to just sit here. So come, minister to me. Well, God forbid. No, no, you come here and you say, okay, who can I be a blessing to? Who can I be a Barnabas to? And you see, when we all come like that, We all go away helped. So, you know, be a Barnabas. Be an encourager. More of the same. Keep going. And do what Barnabas did. In light of this, two quick comments in closing. One is to be thankful for a Barnabas. How would we get along without a Barnabas? Uh, I've, I've had such people in my life. And uh, they lift us up. And they see us through. So let's not take that for granted, you know. If you've been so richly blessed as to have people in your life who are like Barnabas... Well, you should be thankful. They're not there by accident. You didn't luck out. We heard this morning, no such thing. No, it's a, it's a blessing and a provision of God. So be thankful for a Barnabas. And secondly, seek to be a Barnabas. Seek to be a Barnabas. Oh, you say, oh, that's, that's just, that's not me. I'm not that guy. Well, <laughs> I understand that. That's how I feel myself. But I take encouragement, and you can take encouragement from this, that in that passage that we read to begin with, Acts 11, it says, For he was a good man, Barnabas, full of the Holy Spirit. So why was he such a blessing? Because he's a man among men. No, because he's full of the Holy Spirit. That's how, and that's why, and that's why there's hope for you and me. We can more and more be men and women who encourage other people, who get them on their feet. We dust them off.